Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langston. And me, Ian Morris. And if you are one of our patrons, thank you. This is your extended ad-free version of this week's show. Thank you for keeping us in fresh pants and smiles and just generally keeping us going. You are amazing. And um, all the people who are supporting us on our $3 tier, of course, are supporting us and getting our, uh, our sister show, Extra Message, our live streams, our unedited and uncensored versions, and a lot more. And please do consider joining them and supporting us for about the same amount of money as buying us a beer once a month. Extra Message this week, I'm assuming, is with Extra Ian. Is that it's right? It's with Extra Ian. We are taking a trip back uh, Great. 12 years ago to when you and I started podcasting together at CNET UK. We found some old archive recordings. We have got some, there's some real joy <laughs> on that feed, but we might talk a little bit about that later on in the show. But thank you, patrons. Now, Ian, this week, Engadget wrote that Netflix had said earlier in the year that it would experiment with releasing weekly top 10 lists mm. across various categories, and the first test has now gone out via social media. For now, though, it's only releasing data tied to UK viewers, which is very interesting for an American company to do something first in the UK. Um, but that is what it is doing, and uh, and that's obviously why it's very relevant to us. And Netflix said, again, according to Engadget's write-up, that the list includes the most watched individual season of a show, film, or special, regardless of when it launched, and that watched is defined as finishing at least 70% of one episode, which I believe is more than YouTube counts as a mm. play. Um now I had a, before we get into the discussion here. Um, I, I I looked at the top ten most watched list because I was very curious to see how popular some of the archive content was. Turns out not very. The overall ten most watched in the UK in April were Our Planet, The Perfect Date, The Highwayman, The Silence. Don't worry, some of these shows don't start with the Black Summer, Afterlife, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Riverdale, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and You versus Wild. Now. Of that top ten, Ian, yeah, nine are only available on Netflix in the UK. So I'm sort of wondering, or was wondering, why are we surprised? Netflix gives an enormous presence to its own shows, full screen takeovers. It's unashamedly pushing them out, and I've absolutely nothing against that at all. Um, the reason I just sound a bit miffed is because I suppose I don't fully understand why this is being treated in the media and by Netflix as being you know, some kind of surprise that nine of the top 10 most popular things on Netflix are things Netflix commissioned or distributes and promotes heavily on its own homepage. Um, Am I no, missing something? No, no, you're not. But um, I don't even, I think that even if it wasn't the case that um, that those were the popular shows, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me because I think that people, what, what people want is originals and they want that kind of high quality Netflix entertainment that the company's become pretty famous for doing off its own back, which... Um, I think is a is a good thing. I, I I'm I'm glad that Netflix is in the content making game, and we've talked about this before. It can't survive on other people's content. There's no margin in it, really. It doesn't own the rights. Disney is about to pull 
all of its um, superhero stuff from the platform at some point this year because um, it's got its own streaming platform launching. And as you will probably be aware, it's just completed a sort of kind of takeover of Hulu, um, sort of. It's very complicated. Um, and that's not to say that some of these aren't co-productions. They're sharing well, the production right, the, the, the costs. The, with- well, <laughs> the most famous example is Star Trek Discovery, which is on Netflix in every country in the world apart from the US. But in order to get that deal, Netflix basically paid all the production costs for Star Trek and CBS still retains the rights for it. So it will be, um, it it basically got a free show out of it. All it had to do was license the property. Um, And so, uh, you know, now now it's got, it's basically had a free show produced for it and it will be able to then make money out of that ongoing. But I'm sure Netflix has made money out of it as well because Discovery was probably a huge draw. Ah, well, you have swung very, very nicely into my point and and why I think this is relevant to us. Netflix is teasing this data, right? Because it doesn't give out viewing figures. No. Um, We know that viewing figures on Netflix and platforms like Netflix, they have to be measured differently because Netflix isn't ad-supported. So it needs a different type of metric, you know, pure viewers, because that equates to eyeballs that an ad has reached is irrelevant when you don't have ads and interstitials and things like that. For example, you know, I imagine Netflix will look exactly as you just said at which shows release causes the most new signups or maybe the returns of, yeah. of lapsed subscribers. I wrote, I wrote an article about this a while ago actually about how Amazon judges its success and the Grand Tour is very expensive but it was deemed to be a huge success because it's the number one show for bringing people it's the first thing that people stream when they sign up for Amazon Prime yeah so and that on, and on that metric it has done exactly what it needed to do it's brought people to the platform and has got them to turn over their money um but I think that um how Netflix judges it might was will be completely diff- different and in, in a lot I mean the American TV the way American TV's you know counted is really weird it isn't about in advertiser you know funded tv the success of a show is about the people you get in the 18 to 49 age group so there are shows on us tv that have say 10 million viewers but they only appeal to older viewers so they don't have any advertising value so whilst they are watched by a lot of people it doesn't necessarily guarantee their long-term success because if they can't sell advertising you know, and there are only so many old person pills you can push towards that older audience. Anyway, that was a little diversion. But I, I think this is this is probably the most interesting bit uh, of kind of unwritten and not ominous subterfuge is that this list is not a list of the shows that are most important to Netflix necessarily. It's a popularity contest, or rather, it's the results of a popularity contest because it's the it's the tech, it's the algorithms, the the, the successful or failed recommendations. Um, based on our collective viewing habits that really provide the most value to to a company like Netflix. And that's that's the data that's not being shared here, I, I, I think. And I think it'd be very interesting if it did. You know, what is the number one show for driving subscriptions? What is the number one show for um, for pushing people onto another series after they've watched it? What is the number one reason people come back to Netflix it, things like that, I think, are far more interesting and are only really possible when you've got this kind of hyper granular data that we're yeah. giving it, because it knows it, it might know to commission a show because that is designed for mobile phones. Yeah, because it knows that a certain old program it's streaming and a certain actor 
um, are both popular with people streaming stuff on a Sunday morning. Mm. So it will go out and commission a Sunday morning appropriate mobile watch in bed with one eye closed yeah. type show purely based on all that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that, and there is some value to that. Um, it might be considered creepy by some, but I, I don't. I mean, honestly, I don't think you can have any illusions about the fact that in a in a streaming platform, it is going to be impossible for you to retain any sort of sense of privacy. You're you're streaming a program, so it's going to be very obvious what you're actually, um, you know, what you're watching at any given time. Um, I was going to say something about Netflix, and I've it's left my mind. I'm so sorry, but I'll tell. Um, uh, John in the chat's uh, quite pleased that he's about to exit the advertising catchment area um, and go on to be not bothered by advertising, I guess. Now, I wanted to ask something about Amazon Prime. Mm. You, you touched on this because I find Amazon Prime to be, I don't want to be overdramatic, but I would think I would say one of the the most horribly de- de- designed pieces of anything that's yes. ever existed. It, it, it truly is the worst thing ever. If you were going to design something and you wanted to make it feel, make the people using it feel like they were literally in hell, yeah. then Amazon Prime is what you would do. And some of the reasons for that are, for example, going to stream a series and all the series being separated on a home screen by individual <laughs> season, yep. not by show. Some of them being included in your subscription and some of them perhaps not. The home screen being a collection of things with much duplication yes you know so watch you might, the grand tour yeah watch, watch the grand tour or watch, watch the, gra- the grand tour or watch the grand tour in ultra hd 4k which is a ah, separate page from the grand tour that is so so annoying you know and and the final thing the the, the thing that really sort of i feel is a massive kick in the in the chaps yes yes, yes. is interstitial ads promoting other amazon <laughs> programs right can, can i just uh can i just is it okay to swear or does can no. you can oh i mean you can i'm gonna beep it out but well I that's what you. i that's I, what i mean is, it, is, it, didn't. is it, it a hassle can yes. we just okay so I, there's gonna be a word included here in here and it's a foul word but i'm just gonna say something else okay it is really flipping annoying and i it drives me up the wall but netflix also is just as guilty because it has that horrible you know, you cannot rest on a thing on the Netflix home screen without it playing a trailer of some kind, and it drives me up the wall. But I agree. I am paying for both of these services out of my own hard-earned money. But at least all that is, and I agree I felt irked by that too, yeah. but at least all that is, is a glorified, uh, you know, thumbnail. I admit it's a, a not very... It, it moves with audio. It isn't a thumbnail, it's a video, and it's loud, But the and am- it really irritates me. But the Amazon equivalent yes. is... Here's an advert uh, for would, one of our shows well, would you, that you like can't to, skip. Oh, what shall I watch? What shall I? I know. I'll watch this. Oh, you want to watch this? Okay, let's go. Here's something else. Yeah. How is that a good spit? If I get on a bus and say I would like to go to Manchester, please, mm. and they say, okay, no problem. You've paid your money. On you get. And then it says, welcome to Leeds. Yes. It's nothing against Leeds. No, no, no. Leeds is very nice. Um. But I don't want to be in Leeds. <laughs> I want to watch the Grand Tour yeah. or Buffy. If you have any thoughts on anything that we have talked about, uh, both in the regular version of the show, in the extended Patreon version of the show, which included uh, a lot more discussion relevant to the first topic, uh, and then a lot more stuff that will not make it into the final version because we <laughs> rambled on for 25 minutes about Star Trek, you can do all that by going to your email browser and putting in hello at techpodcast.uk, a subject line, a body, and pressing send.
more band, Ian. Oh, alert, alert. Alert. It's happening, guys. The B word. Not Brexit. Broadband. Just as boring. <laughs> it's not. I'm only joking. I love a bit of broadband. One word into a story and we've gone off at a tangent. Yep. It's entirely my fault, but um, there we go. Broadband, pay TV, mobile phone and landline customers, Ian. What have they got in common? Um, they're paying for services. That's very good. It's almost like you knew what I was going to say. <laughs> they also must be told when their contracts are about to end and be informed of their provider's best alternative deals. That is under new rules. This is per a write-up on the BBC. The Beeb said that the UK's communications watchdog, that is Ofcom, for those not acquainted, aims to help users avoid overpaying. And Ofcom actually first announced its plan to help people like secure these end-of-contract deals uh, last year, almost a year ago, actually. And now we know how it's going to do it. Relevant companies, Antti says, have nine months to update their systems and must start sending out notifications from the 15th of February 2020, mm. the BBC wrote. And service providers will need to text, email or send a snail mail to their customers between 10 and 40 days before their contract comes to an end. A letter. To say, well, some people are like that, mate. Yeah, and I, to be true. honest with you, I'm getting closer to just wanting post <laughs> and silence. Um, they will have to be told the date their contract can be terminated without a penalty, the price they have been paying, any changes to the price or service that automatically comes into effect after the date, how much notice they need to give to cancel their deal, and the best alternative subscriptions on offer, including the prices charged to new customers. That is the most important point, as far as I'm concerned, having recently switched mobile providers, because a huge amount of the time, people who haven't been giving you business for several years are given better deals than those of us who have. Tedious yes. and annoying and unfair. Um, that is true, and I have, I do have some sympathy for that. But also, I, again, I, I'm, I'm going to err slightly on the side of capitalism, in that I do think people need to grow up and take responsibility. Like I am literally the worst person in the world. Not for, true. Yeah. Well, um, for for um, failing to manage services and uh pay bills on time and all of that kind of stuff i'm I'm really not motivated at all to deal with stuff um but even i accept the fact that if you don't pay a bill in time you're going to get a late fee you know like if you don't pay my credit card every month i fail to pay my credit card no that's not true most months i do pay it but every now and then i'll be like i haven't paid it i could have paid it why didn't i pay it now i'm down whatever it is 12 quid for nothing um but i but i also accept the fact that this is my responsibility that i am the one who is an adult and i am i know that these things are happening the credit cards are due on the same day every month or same date you know I, th- I think that people have are expecting to be nurse maided into you know having all this stuff given to them, and it's like those companies are kind of entitled to make money, and if you don't change your contract at the end of it, then why would they volunteer to make less money? It doesn't make any business sense, does it? You know, it's a okay, it's a it's, point. It's no, it's a compelling it's a compelling point. It resonates with a chap from the Citizens Advice Bureau, who I saw quoted in a, in a story about this, who said that we should go further. And actually, no, wait, it's the exact opposite. He disagrees with you. He says that this should go be taken further, and companies should be forced to reveal how much more people out of their contracts are paying compared with new customers um, in a contract that 
came with like sign-up discounts and things. So he's saying the opposite. He's saying not only should this happen, but it should be basically published how much a company is inadvertently ripping off would, existing customers. How would that even work? Because every deal is different on a mobile network, isn't it? Like if you think about it, you know there'll be a, there'll be a probably a different deal on each of the main. So let's say mobile phone companies. There'll be a different deal on those sites every month. That their system will have probably thousands of people on different deals to each other. Perhaps who signed up within the same year. So how how are they ever going to manage that? You know, there might be a discount. They might have some sort of uh, friends and family discount or they might have, I don't know, maybe there's a discount for taking two services or whatever. You know, it's it would be so impossible to correctly communicate that. Um, I mean, and also, if people want to know, they can check. If I want to know, so I'm on three, as we all know, I pay £20 a month. I get, I get no data because I'm... It, in London, and it's a disgrace. Um, but, uh, well, again, this goes back to my responsibility. I could have changed. I was going to say. I still haven't done it. Um, but, you know, but, um, you know, but it's up to me. I, I can look at my thing and say, oh, I'm paying 20 quid a month, but I've got unlimited data. I see that EE will give me £20 a month, but I only get 20 gigs of data. It's probably not worth me changing. I passed a sign on the walk from lunch mm. uh, buying some clothes and noticed Vodafone has a deal for like 100 gig of data for 25 quid. Mm. So why don't you just go out and Sorry, get... did you say Vodafone? Yeah. Well, well I you've got... answered your own question there. I've got 100 gig on EE. They probably give you a similar deal. Yes, probably. Probably. I mean, I won't be going to Vodafone. Fair enough. Uh, in no way. Uh, your wife, uh, by the way, has wifed me in the chat and says, set up a standing order. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that's good wife advice. Thanks, Kate. I married her for her uh, her her face. Yes. Her, um, just her soul, but also her advice. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is an uh, almost unrivaled. Well, if you have any thoughts on this, because we have clearly exhausted all of ours, why not send them into the usual places? Why not treat yourself, treat your hands, send them via Twitter. We are at text message pod, and our timeline is as open as my arms to a person in need. Reuters wrote this week that San Francisco officials have voted 8 to 1 to ban the purchase and use of facial recognition technology by city personnel in a move, Reuters said, to regulate the tools that local Silicon Valley companies helped develop. It came during the same week that the BBC broadcast a report highlighting some of the trials being conducted by British authorities, such as the Metropolitan Police in London, which the Beeb said has been trialling the use of facial recognition in different parts of the capital, using cameras, for example, to scan passers-by to find matches on watch lists. We've also talked about that in the podcast before, as well as the South Wales Police, which has used similar technology in certainly five, six, probably more uh, trials, at least that I know of. Uh, And we also know that our Home Office has taken a very positive stance towards the technology as a way of fighting crime. And the BBC, in its report this week, said the Metropolitan Police have now concluded its trial and is awaiting the results of an independent evaluation of what it learned. So, on this side of the pond, we're powering ahead with trials. Our officials seem to endorse them. And across the sea, in perhaps the birthplace of much of this technology, we've got officials threatening bans and putting big question marks over deployment. I thought 
We need an American to help us figure out this discrepancy. And I happen to know a very good one all the way from Los Angeles in his daily tech news show studio. It's Mr. Tom Merritt. Hey, Tom. Hi, Nate. Um, when I emailed you this morning um, with a link to both of these stories, which happened to appear side by side in my RSS feed uh, first thing this morning, um, I sent them to you. What was your first takeaway? Were you surprised? I was not surprised. Uh, f first of all, I've been following the, the stories about uh, facial recognition in the UK uh, and with the former Home Secretary, now the Prime Minister, that, you know, who knows for how long, but that did not shock me that that's happening in the UK. And it didn't surprise me that San Francisco would do this either for, for two reasons, one old, one new. Uh, San Francisco for a long time has been a very liberal bastion in the United States. Uh, it is very concerned with minority rights. And so the fears that facial recognition could unjustly prejudice uh, minority people by false identifications, uh, because facial recognition really isn't that good yet, uh, would be a normal thing I would expect San Francisco to be concerned about. Also, uh, more recently, there is a huge backlash against the tech community in the city of San Francisco. And so this is a little bit also punishing the tech community uh, for overreach uh, by saying, no, we don't want you spying on us with your facial recognition. Now, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I mean, I don't think we've felt, uh, felt a, a tech backlash quite the same, uh, but I think economically, uh, London certainly is in a very different position to San Francisco in that a lot of the wealth and status that exists in the city isn't, uh, isn't from uh, tech companies as much as it is, um, you know, financial institutions and lawyers and, uh, and a variety of other moguls. Um, but one of the things that obviously makes an issue like this really uh, resonate is how the public responds. And over here, I don't feel that there's really been any kind of vocal outcry to even the trial of facial recognition technology in this vein, let alone uh, the potential deployment of it. And I've, I wonder if that's simply because the public isn't really being told. They're not being informed about this. Um, and before I ask you the same question about how you feel that sort of side of things is in, in, in the US. I just think that it's worth pointing out that this is not a new technology, really. It has been around for quite a long time. And I think that perhaps, at least in Britain, the gradual rollout of biometrics, fingerprint, uh, even just things like Face ID, maybe has sort of if not desensitized people to the point that they don't care, it certainly doesn't raise suspicion when they hear it talked about on the news. Um, and I wondered, is that similar, would you say, in, in the US at the moment? Yeah, I feel like it, it, there's so many complex factors feeding the reaction to this. Um, but in general, facial recognition is viewed with, uh, at best, skepticism and at worst, uh, total distrust and anger. Uh, Delta Airlines is one of a few airlines in the United States trialing facial recognition for boarding which you would think would be mostly uncontroversial. It's saying, instead of having to show us the piece of paper or the app, uh, we'll scan your face. And if we say, yes, that's you, uh, we'll let you on board. We already have your face in a database. It's not like you're adding it to the database. There's there's no chance for a false positive. I mean, I guess there is, uh, but they, they apparently tune it enough so that, you know, at worst, you might have to show your boarding pass anyway if the facial recognition didn't work. And that was met with outrage. That was met with a lot of anger about 
I don't want to be part of this. I want to opt out of facial scanning when I board my airplane. How do I do that? Even though it really doesn't affect anything. They're using a government database uh, of passport photos to do this. Uh, people are like, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. They shouldn't have access to that data. In the United States right now, there is very much a climate of we are tired of the government first and later large tech companies spying on us. Uh, and we don't have any tolerance for even the hint of it anywhere. Yeah, and I think the, the the issue you raised earlier about the uh, the difference in uh, reliability when it comes to non male, non white uh, faces in particular is very notable. I mean, we've seen and we've discussed certainly on both of our respective podcasts uh, issues that that uh, Google has had in the past, where um, there was a, a black man and woman who were wrongly identified as gorillas, I think, mm. in a photo uh, app, and obviously Google corrected that. Uh, and there've been a lot of issues just in general discussion around accuracy that these models the algorithms have are trained on predominantly a lot of white men and so um, there's a huge risk of false positives for black and minority ethnic groups being you know identified as potential criminals which flags a gigantic and very understandable and very real race card um, and I don't feel that that issue is that different between the UK and the US despite the fact that as two nations we have two very different, I would say, histories when it comes to, um, you know, ethnic groups and rights and, mm. and things like that. Um, but in terms of diversity, where both both nations are, are extremely diverse, and I, I can't see that being not an issue here, um, if it's an issue in the US or vice versa. Yeah, it, it is very much an issue in, in the U.S., and it is one of the, the main reasons cited uh, for San Francisco voting against uh, allowing the city to buy facial recognition is that uh, it will lead to more false positives and harassment uh, out of proportion to minority residents and citizens than, than it would um, make busts. Uh, that said, the people on the other side of the issue say, yes, that may be true, but we should put safeguards in place. We should put regulation in place, and we should test this in city-based areas in order to help improve and get rid of those kinds of biases and kinds of false positives. But the city of San Francisco says, no, we, we don't want to experiment with, with real people. Uh, forget it. We're just not going to do it at all. Well, it's a it's a fascinating topic. It's not going away anytime soon, and I'm I'm definitely going to be very interested in uh, you know keeping tabs on how our two countries, certainly our two cities, you know San Francisco and and London in particular, you know how how long they remain so opposed in this way. Um, but just finally, I thought it might be worth just getting a sense of both of our personal stances because you know on the one hand I'm very aware that as a white male uh, I'm at a, a much lower risk of uh, wrongful identity um, when it comes to getting flagged for potential crimes I didn't commit um, but I still don't like face automated facial recognition technology because partly as a journalist but mostly just as a human I don't want to feel like I wouldn't attend some kind of a you know a rally or a or a, uh, a protest as a reporter being there to report on it happening for fear that it I'm potentially on a database I'm having my face checked like that's just I feel like it may stop me or, or certainly make me uncomfortable uh, in attending some of those events which I should feel free to attend uh, and I wondered what your your view on it was uh, if you're happy sharing it yeah, my you know, my, my first thought upon seeing this was, that's interesting. I wonder what Chicago will do uh, in relation to this. I wonder what Atlanta will do. I wonder what Berlin will do, uh, because those are, are very different situations. Uh, and 
I personally think that there is value in facial recognition, and the only problems with facial recognition are with the implementation. It's with the humans using it, uh, as with most things technology. So before it is thrown into a law enforcement situation, I think we have to go a long way towards validating the accuracy of it uh, and developing the accuracy of it uh, and building trust with the community that it will be used in a responsible way. Uh, the validating and, and development is continuing apace. Uh, Microsoft is, is doing it in a fairly responsible way, calling for regulation. Amazon doing it in maybe a little more reckless way uh, on, on its own and, and selling it out there already. But but that's not going to stop. So really, w the place what, that I hope people will focus on is how do we build trust to use this? Because it will eventually be used somewhere, uh, and it will eventually uh, have the potential to be used well. And I want to be able to take advantage whenever that time comes in in a careful and responsible manner well it's been uh, great to talk to you about this um we'll keep talking no doubt and normally i would give any guest at this point in the show uh, the sort of the opportunity to plug um their podcast and what they've been doing um but instead would i'm just going to save that until the, later on in the show <laughs> when we'll have you back to promote it anyway so for now thanks tom Merritt. thanks date i'll be back in a minute Well, let's jump into the mailbag, shall we, uh, Ian? Let's yeah. jump in. We've got a message that came in from Charlotte, who I do actually believe is in the chat room as we speak. Aye. So this is it's getting very meta, but it's also proving that it does work. When you talk about people, they like to contribute more. So Charlotte emailed in. In fact, no, she didn't. She sent this on Discord in the week. Uh, she said, late to the game, but genuinely enjoyed the phone chat this week. My contract is up next February, and I'd like to get a Pixel, but also I'd like to be a good person and have a fair phone. So until then, I'll be counting the pros and cons of each. Now, I wondered whether she was using the term fair phone as a generic term to mean a phone that was made with ethical standards, or she meant the fair phone, which is a brand, which has the motto, or as they say, motto, it has a line on its website that says, we've created the world's first ethical modular smartphone. You shouldn't have to choose between a great phone and a fair supply chain. I imagine she means the latter. Yes, I... Um... I actually interviewed someone from Fairphone. Oh, really? Yes, quite a long time ago. I've got a video of it somewhere, but I never. I don't think it ever got published. What's what was their rationale then for creating a Fairphone? Well, it's it's a lot because obviously a lot of the problems that you know are in the tr in a traditional phone are that the materials are very difficult to source without um, putting people in either danger or uh, massive poverty. So. A lot of the precious materials that are used in phones uh, come out of, um, you know, African countries. So, and the people mining them may not be treated particularly well. So, I think a lot of the idea was to try and source things ethically, but it was also to be easily recyclable. I believe that the one that I saw was sort of semi-modular. So there were bits that you could replace. They are modular, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, actually, to be fair, they did a better job of it than um, than Google did with the that stupid. Aria project or or Aura, yeah, Project Aura, Aura, something Aria. like that. Yeah, I remember the one. <clears throat> I mean, that thing looked like a piece of junk, and it was never going to work. But this but, is different. But, but, the Fair, well, but Fairphone actually does, and it is, and it, and it, it's not. I don't wouldn't describe it as perhaps the <laughs> world's most sexy smartphone. But if you're looking for something ethical, I don't think anyone else comes close. I mean, perhaps Apple tries 
don't they? I don't think that's a, I don't think that's up for debate in this. I think a fair yeah, phone is probably I think it's very different. a very different proposition, and, and a lot about being recyclable later on in its life and easy to break down and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, one of the things I often think about that is if you're in a position where you have even the slightest influence on other people when it comes to talking about these sorts of things, then actually sacrificing perhaps some of the quality or functionality that you get from a massively mainstream product in order to have a device um, that actually does everything you want but allows you to sort of be a bit more you know perhaps public about your things you believe in or mm. care about and uh, um, then that's a good reason maybe to actually plump for that sort of a sort of a product yeah um if if you have if you're just i don't say cutting your nose to spite your face i'm sure it's a very very good product but <clears throat> if you are sacrificing things and there is no benefit other than your own personal satisfaction which is a totally legitimate reason as well then maybe don't but yeah, I mean, in the chat, Charlotte's uh, just saying it's about modern day slavery and stuff like that as well. So yeah. I mean, it's very important. And supporting things with your money, with your wallet. <laughs> yeah. Very good reason as well. Yeah, yes. Of and a lot of companies, I've been noticed recently that um, a lot of, well, I mean, I think it's a law thing, right? A lot of companies do have a modern day slavery statement on their website yeah. and um, other things. So it's, it's always worth having a look to see what where people stand on things, although they're not going to admit to, you know, taking products sourced from slave labor. I mean, a lot of the time you wouldn't know, I guess. But And that's part of the problem. A lot of the time the companies themselves don't know. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Um, but it takes it takes a lot of effort for them to push down the supply chain and find out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but, well, I mean, there are companies that do take it very seriously. For example, I years ago interviewed 50 Cent when he was making headphones um, and he, he had a Disney, he had um, some Star Wars headphones in the lineup and um, he said that when you do a deal with Disney to produce something, they are out to every factory involved in the process making sure because obviously you can imagine if a disney product was found to have been made by children the headlines just wouldn't stop so there is a there are companies that are diligent about it yeah but for for what reason because the diligence there is for pr reasons well yeah but i mean that's still not a bad thing like you know the end result is that they're not using child labor so you know i mean you can you can argue their motives all you want but the result is the same you interviewed 50 Cent? Yes. When? Oh, it was a CS years ago. He, it was great. I, had a, I, had like a, I was supposed to have a 10-minute interview. I'll tell you the whole story later. But um, the, um, the, the upshot of it was I was a bit late for my, because I was silly. And um, I had to reschedule. But in the end, we just sat down and talked for like 20 minutes. It was supposed to be a really short five-minute interview to just catch up. Whatever. I think I've got the audio somewhere. If you have... I am. It won't be very good. It was just I just recorded it for reference um, and had it on my iPhone. I think if we can find it, then, ladies and gentlemen, oh, I'm pretty sure I've we're got going it. to finish this show later it with might. Ian talking to Fifty. It cent. might be in my iCloud, actually. Anyway, go on. Carry in on. the meantime, we're going to welcome uh, a, a familiar voice back onto the show. Um, in fact, it's Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show to hear about what's happening in the wider world of tech over the last week. Hello again. Uh, This week on Daily Tech News Show, we discussed why everyone can sue Apple in the United States now over its domination of the App Store. has to do with the Supreme Court decision. Why you might want Lenovo's 13.3-inch foldable tablet that acts like a laptop. We discovered the wonders of Google's Translatotron, which translates what you say into another language but still uses your voice. Explained what is going on with the U.S. moves against Huawei and how it could stop the company from doing business. And Ant Pruitt helps us learn not to be scared of advanced image editing software like Adobe Lightroom. All that and much more at dailytechnewsshow.com. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you, patrons, for supporting us, getting access to Extra Message, which this week, as we mentioned at the top of the show today, 
um, includes quite a lot. I think three separate recordings that I found, just snippets of um, of Ian and I in our 2007 era of podcasting. Rory's in one of them, I think. Mm. Kate Macefield makes an appearance in one of them. Yeah, I listened to the whole, well, I can't remember, it was like episode 100 or something like that, or 101, I, I think. found one episode that was episode 44, which ah. was like early 2008, and it's in and out. And my accent has changed <laughs> quite a lot. I've got to say that I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to blow our own trumpet here because it's... It's well, I'm going to do it anyway. But it was it entertained me. Yes, you know, even even now, that's how many years ago? Twelve. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was good. It was a good. It was a good, and it still is a good podcast when it's not on hiatus. Anyway, I think I came across as a know-it-all smartass, perhaps. But um, that was the nature of what we were doing at the time. That's true. We were I all sort of builders, being you know the greatest tech experts in the whole of the UK. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, if you enjoyed that, then uh, good. If you'd like to enjoy that, it's out now on Extra Message, which you can access by joining our Patreon club on our $3 and above tier. Send any comments to uh, all the usual places and all being well, Ian and I will be back next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.